Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabares, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Okay, so welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Eric Larson, co-founder of and former publisher of Image Comics, known for drawing and writing comics since the 1980s, including Megaton, DNA Agents, Punisher, Doom Patrol, Spider-Man, and his magnum opus flagship character, Savage Dragon. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Jim and I are probably going to actually jump between different topics. So Jim's going to start with your early life, and then I'll take it from there, and then he'll go back. So go ahead, Jim. What we usually do is, is I like to ask questions about where you were born, when, your first comics, that kind of thing. So let, let's start. I know you were born in 1962. You and I are practically the same age by a year or two off and a day off. You're December 8th, and I'm December 9th. You're born on the same day as my dad. Right. So that's a really good thing. Awesome. So. You were born in Minneapolis, but I know you moved to Washington and then California. Talk about whens and and how and whys. I'm not really 100% sure on all the whys. I think it was people going to school at the time, and I was just like, all right, we're done with the University of Minnesota. Time to move on to something else. My dad was a a teacher eventually. He was kind of a nomad, kind of like the... Mm-hmm. Didn't like to settle down anywhere. It never seemed like we were living anywhere for very long. So he was a professor? Yeah. What field? He was teaching a lot of English stuff, and and he was doing a lot of plays and doing the drama stuff. So he was oh, okay. kind of all over, the, all over the place. So he sounds like he was a creative I, I never person. took any of his classes, so I, don't, I, don't, I can only just go, I think it was this. <laughs> In terms of you becoming a writer, which you are, was he in any way an influence? Just in that he did it. So I know there was, you know, an awareness that he was writing stuff. And he, in his later years, was more doing kind of self-help and kind of creating your own kind of everything. He was, he was, he was, he was really trying to get People sort of in the, the whole back to the land kind of movement that was going on in the 70s. He was he was hip deep in that kind of oh. stuff. Self-reliance and barter and all this other kind of stuff. He was he was way into that. Oh, OK. Now, were you an early reader? We kind of grew up with his comics. He bought comics when he was a little kid. Uh-huh. And so we had his comics that had been kicking around and he gave them to us way too early and we kind of wrecked a lot of comics that probably would be worth a lot of money later on yeah which yeah, comics which, were those i mean he he started in the 40s so oh he, it would be all those all that golden age stuff that is so treasured by oh, everybody oh boy did you have an appreciation then for those early artists? Did that in any way impact um, oh, sure, sure. your formative style? Oh, that's yeah, interesting. I mean, I, he had a big collection of Captain Marvel adventures, and I was really super into that stuff. 
mm. um, when I was young. You know, as years years went on, I started getting into my own comics and buying my own stuff. But early on, it was all about the Marvel stuff. And I mean, he bought comics until they he grew up with comics, and comics grew up with him. And when they stopped making comics for people his age, then he stopped buying them. So he was I getting see. comics up through the EC stuff. Uh-huh. And, oh, and, great. And when EC stopped, he even got them right up until Psychoanalysis and MD and that. When they pulled the plug on, on their comics, he stopped buying comics. Uh-huh. So you were being exposed to people like Jack Davis and people like that rather than a lot of the people we talked to, especially of your age, were instead growing up on the earliest stuff might be Ditko and Kirby yeah. or or the next phase after that. But you were getting exposed to some of those 50s great artists. That's really yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. There, was a, there was a lot of that. There was the later stuff too, but really I'm not old enough to be around for the early Marvel comics. Those were really before my time. So my when I started really reading and buying comics it was the mid 70s right i don't have any like oh i remember when i was reading fantastic four one it's like no that that never happened so you were drawing your dragon before you were reading those comics then yeah i had barely anything at at that point when i started drawing comics i think Mm -hmm. i had like one or two comics and that was all i had dragon was more influenced by dick spraying batman than he was any of that other stuff Wow. It's a little bit of CC back Captain Marvel, too, because you had the code word, right? You had, like, turning, saying yeah, a word. Yeah, and yeah turning. I had uh, Fonty, and their characters would change, and awesome. I heard the, the car, basically, was from Speed Racer. Were you watching at that point? Were you aware of, of that kind of stuff as well, or was that just a coincidence? My Speed Racer was just from we had family who lived someplace else and they had speed racer on their tv and it was i was super into it but it was such a limited thing that i had just seen it like once or twice and it made this huge impression on me but i didn't grow up with speed racer as a thing because we just didn't have it where we were at on our tv the Captain Marvel influence, I assumed when I was researching this that that came from the relaunch in the early 70s. But you had grown up reading the early stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. The actual yeah, no, back stuff. from the 70s, my dad brought that home like, oh, look, he's back. Isn't this awesome? <laughs> and then, but those comics weren't very good. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Even, even with DC <laughs> Beck doing some of the artwork, it was like, oh, these are pretty shaky and kind of dumb. well that's what people said yeah yeah and it's like i I can see why this didn't catch fire again because these these comics weren't very good right Um, now even when you were that young before you started buying your own stuff were you more drawn to the cc back more cartoony style rather than the captain marvel jr Raboy kind of things or yeah we didn't have any my dad didn't didn't like the Raboy stuff so he Uh didn't get any of that so i didn't i didn't have any of that his Collection was kind of weird and jumped all over the place. So he had little in the way of DC Comics. The DC Comics he had, he had a, had a decent run on Boy Commandos. So that was my oh. first experience with, with Jack Kirby. Wow, that's cool. He had like a couple Batman comics and a couple Superman comics, but it wasn't a lot at all. He loved Captain Marvel Adventures. He had a, tons of that. 
He liked Mary Marvel, so he had a fair amount of those and Marvel yeah. Family. He didn't have any Captain Marvel Jr. at all, so the only time I would see Captain Marvel Jr. was in Marvel Family. Mm-hmm. There's books that I go, I don't understand the appeal of this comic at all. And he would have like these these long runs on, God, I can't even remember the name of the character now. It was just like, this is just some dude doing sports. It's not right. like, it's not doing anything cool. It's just like, oh, do you think he's going to jump the pole vault? Yep. Like, all right. <laughs> it's, somehow he was really like, oh, this is this is great. Blue Bolt, I think, was the name of that. Right, right. The Joe yeah. Simon Blue Bolt with Jack Kirby. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. That is actually really notable. I think you're the only one in your age group or even a little bit older than you that even grew up on that. That's really fascinating. Most people go back and they rediscover, they later on become fans of that golden age stuff and they like Jack Cole or they like something like that, but it's not as a kid. And so that's really yeah. interesting that you had that exposure. Um, yeah. Which, no, which I think impacts Jack Cole's another one. He, he bought a bunch of those. He had a bunch. Oh, wow. of, uh, so he had a bunch of Plastic Man. He uh-huh. had uh, the Barker. You know that book? I don't know Barker. No. Yeah, that was another quality comic. So oh, was, really? Oh, I'm going to look that up. He was into that. That was a fun one because it was set in a circus and a yeah. bunch of the circus characters were out solving crimes and, and <laughs> getting into stuff. I don't, yeah. I don't know who drew it. I would have to have to look it up to. That's that's pretty cool. The Barker, but, how fascinating! So there'd be like this guy who had four arms, and he was <laughs> he was out like he was the circus freak, and then there was the fat lady and and stuff like that. The strong man who was a big dope. It was like, oh, this this is cool stuff. But I mean, he he had eclectic taste. He was kind of all over the board. Yeah. That's and pretty cool. It's kind of neat. Did you yeah. have those books? Were those part of what you lost in the... Yeah, he had given me all his comics at one point, and then they all went away. So, so. Oh, boy. Did you so, use those as references when you were first starting and doing stuff? Not really. Not a lot, no. I mean, there were certain things that, that I would look at and go, look at the approach for drawing covers that these guys would do. But I've never really been one of those guys who sits there and draws with a bunch of artwork scattered in right. front of me i was uh-huh. just like i gotta get my work done i can't just be sitting there reading this stuff or i'll i'll never get right. anything done so when you're reading your own stuff and you're picking out things that you're interested in the mid-70s now marvel is still it's still doing some of the horror stuff but it's it's kind of faded that's more the very early 70s i was i was reading a lot of that the man thing and tomb of dracula and all of those books were you more reading the superhero things? I was more reading the superhero things. I did get some of the Mike Plug, yeah, uh, man oh. things. Yeah, so oh, I did man get thing, some yeah. of that stuff. Man thing, giant size man thing, all that stuff. But I, I wasn't big on the horror books. I, I didn't get into Tomb of Dracula at all as a kid. I was reading kind of all the mainstream Marvel stuff. So Hulk, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, all that sort of thing. What about, did you ever look at Warren magazines, any of those things? Nope. Those okay. were not, they didn't exist where I was. Ah, I gotcha. Distribution. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, it's just limited to whatever happened to be at the Spinner Rack and Rexall Drug at Fort Bragg, California. 
That's right. Yeah, were, yeah. were you drawing? I mean, what I used to do is I would just take a, a issue of the Hulk, like a Herb Trimpey issue, and just copy the splash pages. Were you drawing things like that, or I was drawing my own comics starting in about fourth grade, and mm-hmm. they would just be eight and a half by eleven paper folded in half, and then I would just tell my own stories and even use Marvel and DC characters. I would have just Superman just come by and be part of the story. And, mm-hmm. and whoever else I just felt like, oh, here's, here's Batman. What's going on with Batman? Me and a buddy of mine in sixth grade created these characters called the Deadly Duo, which we later used. That book was basically just our team-up book. And so we had all sorts of unauthorized guest stars who just drop on by and be part of that. <laughs> That's and, awesome. And you know, they were real characters. I mean, from, oh, yeah, from yeah. other comics. Just, like, hey, here's here's the Deadly Duo are teaming up with Batman. This is right like, crossovers already. Yes. Cat are getting into a farting contest, and it's like that's <laughs> yeah, totally what they would do. <laughs> so, at what point did you think I'm really going to try to do this? I want to be a comic book artist or a comic book writer. I knew early on that I really enjoyed it, and that I wanted it to continue to do it. It must have been super early, but I, I'm not sure how, how conscious it was until later on when Jim Shooter at one point in one of those Marvel fanfares was kind of talking a little about the process and, and mm, okay, hey, people can make a living doing this sort of thing. And at that point, I had already been drawing my own comics for quite a while. Right. But just the idea that, oh, guys actually do this stuff, I think like the how to draw comics the Marvel way ended up being super influential for a lot of people who kind of didn't even realize, Oh, this is a thing that people do. Yeah. Right. The John Bushima. Yeah. 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 Stan Lee book. Yeah. We didn't know Mm -hmm. really how this stuff came about. And so it's like, suddenly there's this instructional book on that. It's like, Holy crap, this is opening up a whole new world here. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. When Kirby left DC and came back to Marvel, were you reading the the 2001 and Devil Dynasty? I mean, some of that seems like stuff you would have loved to have drawn yourself. I was getting Jack stuff when he was still at DC towards the end. So mm-hmm. my early Jack would, would be Commandy, the Demon, and right. it was all post-New Gods. But, but Mr. Miracle was still coming out. I had some of the Mr. Miracle stuff. Did you read The Losers? Did not even see the losers until some years later. Yeah, me too. I was to- I don't know where they put that, but I never saw that. And I I bought everything that, that Kirby was doing at that point. And I didn't even know about the losers. Yeah, there were years I, later. I managed to get all of his first issue specials. So Atlas, Dingbats of Danger Street, and Manhunter were all like, oh, these are awesome. <laughs> these are the greatest yeah. comics ever told. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was I was totally into his work once I keyed into this is this guy and this is his style. I was definitely on board. And then when he came back to Marvel, it was like, holy crap, here we go. Oh, that's so awesome. I was, I was down for him doing Captain America and, and all that stuff. Because at, mm-hmm. at that point, those were books that I wasn't even I wasn't reading them right. yet. So but you Captain, cut. But you jumped on the bandwagon once he started yeah. doing it. As soon as Jack was was there, I was like, "Oh, I know this guy was great, and he's now doing this book that I've heard of." You know? Yeah. 
It's so, like, like the bicentennial Mad Bomb and all that. Oh stuff, yeah, right? yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff and Treasury editions and everything. Yeah. So. Was Kirby your biggest influence at that point, or who else? I know you were reading like Ross Andrews Spider Man, but I assume that you recognized the difference between. Like, yeah, those. Jack was huge. Herb Trimpey was really big for me because uh-huh. uh-huh. he was the he was the Hulk guy. Yeah, and, right. And I loved the Hulk. Uh huh. So it was those two were key. Gil Kane early on too, and I'm not sure what he was even doing because he never stayed on anything for very long. Right. Uh, he, he was doing so many covers, right? That's maybe the Yeah, he was got, yeah. doing a million covers and he would occasionally do something and then I would jump on that, whatever it was, you know, whether it's a giant sized Spider Man or, or whatever it was. I would ate those things up. But I was always kinda like I wanted him to do a run on something and he just wouldn't do it. Right. Because <laughs> his runs were, were earlier on. He had done Green Lantern and Green Lantern, the DC, Adam, yeah. For, you know, years and years, right. but once he had been somewhat established for whatever reason, he never kind of got back to doing longer runs again. Sure. Yeah. I mean, did I think you, at that point he was just like, look, I want to just draw a bunch of covers, have fun, make some money. He did some good Conan stuff though. I mean, some mm-hmm. of the stuff he did with Roy Thomas on Conan was really seemed to revive his interest in mm-hmm. actually caring to some degree. So at what point you were eight when you started to create a version of Savage, or at least somebody called Savage? He would have just been Dragon at that point. Yeah, yeah. Tell so, us a little yeah, bit that, about that character. He was a combination of Batman and, and Speed Racer at that point. Mm-hmm. So he would drive around in a super cool car, and I had just a bunch of stuff that I was really into. So it was oh, I got this guy who's basically captain kirk and he's a cool character so at some point i kind of merged a bunch of my characters together to become one dude and that was the dragon at that point Mm -hmm. and none of it makes a damn bit of sense when you at this point it's hard to even talk about it because it doesn't make any sense it's all through the through the eyes of a child and the child is like I don't know how any of this shit works, you know? Mm-hmm, right. It's like, oh, I, I think people rode around in the desert on the backs of dogs. Isn't that all that? It's like, no. Like <laughs> <laughs> 10 years later, when you were self-publishing graphic fantasy, you're putting, is it the same character as Dragon? Or what's the pathway from when you're drawing it and when you're actually putting it out as part of the fanzine? Graphic fantasy really followed directly from what I was doing as a kid. So it it was kind of putting a cap on those ideas that I had at that point. So there's very much a continuation, but I kept reinventing the the characters as a complicating factor in all this Mm -hmm. is I would keep just going, no, maybe I'm going to have him be this way. No, I'm going to have him be that way. At some point I decided it would be cooler to do a Hulk kind of thing and I had a character named William Johnson would turn into the dragon in yes. times of stress, like the Hulk, <laughs> ah. you know, and then he'd put on a costume. He wasn't a green guy. He was just, he would just be a beefier version of William Johnson. And then he would wear this green mask like Batman, you know, instead of the two ears, he had the fin. And so he would be running around doing whatever. 
And at some later point, I was like, I'm just tired of drawing this stupid cape and all this nonsense that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. So then I just decided to pull William Johnson and Dragon apart and make them two separate characters. And then once I did that, then the obvious choice was just to make Dragon a green guy. Because mm-hmm. like it was pretty much just the same visual, except now it didn't have the mask line on it anymore. Right. And then Ajax Comics Group, we chatted about this a little bit on Facebook, is although it says Ajax Comics Group, it is a fanzine. Did you and your friends publish it or what was it? My dad was a he was a teacher. And later on when he was doing workshops, he was printing up these books that would go to these workshops. And so he had bought a tabletop offset press. And I was like, I could print comics on this press. And so those comics were physically printed by me. Oh. In my living room. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. Oh, okay. So is me and a couple of buddies got together and printed the comics and collated them and put everything in, in a proper order. And really, it was very, very hands-on what we were doing. Do they exist anywhere? Do people have those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I saw one on eBay or something. Yeah. Yeah, they're, ah. they go for a gazillion dollars because it's, it's this rare <laughs> first appearance of Savage Dragon and nobody sure. has it. Right. You know, it's like, sorry, man. If you want to get this thing, it's going to cost you a lot. (laughs) And then just something about the graphic fantasy fanzine is that it got good reviews through the Comics Buyer's Guide and Cat Ironwood was noted to have enjoyed your writing at that point. So you were writing. It wasn't just drawing. I mean, you're actually writing dialogue and things. Um, I was doing everything. I was lettering. I was, I mean, penciling, inking, lettering. It was sending stuff ready to be printed and uh-huh. it was terrible yeah but anybody's <laughs> definition is like awful awful comics you cut your start. teeth on it you got yeah you got better at it and everything mm, yeah and then it's a little bit of a rewind from the graphic fantasy is charlton bullseye comics that went from 1981 to 1982 contributors would work for free to charlton they would send their stuff in but they would build their portfolio for working in other professional comics and you actually submitted the dragon to this is that right yeah that's what the story that i published as graphic fantasy one was the story that i submitted to them Mm -hmm. when i had heard that they were doing this and everybody when they would do a story for charlton bullseye you'd be able to retain the copyright and that was yeah even at that point i knew that was important right that's good i drew this for them knowing by the time I was almost done with it, it's like this comics. I'd heard that it was already been canceled. So when yeah. I said to them, they're like, "Yeah, by the way, this has been canceled." And I was like, "I kind of knew that," uh, <laughs> but it was you know, it took me enough time to to get it done that that had happened in the interim. So you press forward and then published it through the fanzine, and uh-huh. then Gary Carlson, if I'm getting the name right found you through the graphic fantasy work was that because it got good rep in the comics buyer's guide is that pretty much how that happened he had bought it through the mail actually Uh a couple different people bought it through the mail who were actively trying to do their own comics right and they contacted me about doing work for them on their whatever they were doing that was early early work and so then that's how you got hooked up through Gary Carlson to do Megaton 1, 1983, right? Yeah. And I did a character, and that was like an anthology book. 
Mm-hmm. So it had various things in it. And mm-hmm. so the thing I did with him is we co-created a character named Vanguard. Right. And there's that. So <laughs> and there, there it is. <laughs> and then you also reintroduced the dragon in the second issue, I think, right? Yeah. He had a cameo in that. Uh-huh. So was there like this stipulation that you still own the rights to Dragon, even yeah. though you? So how would how was that discussion take place? Do you remember? Well, do you remember uh, saying, "Hey, look, I got to keep the rights." There was uh-huh. never any discussion about it. Okay. It was just, I mean, he would be aware that I own the character already, and so it was like, "Okay, we're doing this now." Mm. And as independent comics, those things become a little more assumed. Then I, I guess. Yeah, there was never any question about that at all. Okay, I gotcha. Then after that, you started working for AC Comics and Eclipse, or rather you did some work for some comics under those banners, was in 1985, Sentinels of Justice, right, for yeah. AC Comics. And that's a pretty eclectic book there. And and the background, just for the, the listeners, is that Charlton wanted to license some of their characters to AC Comics with Bill Black, and then they ended up making some comics, but then Charlton ended up not publishing him, so AC Comics published it under Sentinels of Justice, and this is before DC bought the Charlton characters' rights, and you did some work on that series. When I was doing it, Sentinels of Justice wasn't those characters. Right. It, they were those different guys, yeah. Yeah, because and a lot of the characters that Bill Black did were characters that are in the public domain that he kind of took and, and gave a little twist to, so... Mm-hmm. There was Captain 3D that Jack had done. He turned, changed the name, and he became something else. I oh, that's remember. cool. So there was a lot of that that had gone on there. So he wanted to own names and be, be able to, like, Phantom Lady is in public domain, but DC had the name that they were using. So he was like, oh, I'm going to use the same character, but I'm going to and the same design, but I'm going to call her the Blue Bulleteer. And, yeah, you know that's cool. So yeah. there's there's a fair amount of just we can do this because these are the rules. And he was a big golden age comics guy, so it was all yeah. about yeah, what can we do and how can we do this? Sure. And did you get hooked up with AC because of being found through the Megaton comic? I'm not sure how he got a hold of me. I might very well have just submitted stuff to him. Okay, I got you. Because I was pretty actively just looking for some kind of gig. Right. Whatever that might be. Sure. Did you have fun doing those? I wasn't very good at it. Uh Uh-huh. It was a real struggle. At that point, I had my strengths, and my strengths were characters kicking the living shit out of each other. Yeah. And whenever I would have to do scenes of of people just sitting around talking, I just wasn't very good at it. And so – there would be pages in there that just were lifeless. And it's like, and that's a problem. And so I did get to work out a little of that, but not enough of it. I, it took me several years to kind of get some of that stuff figured out. Yeah. I noticed in Savage Dragon, you'll have a page of dialogue and it'll have like 12 boxes and there's always something different in each one to help drive the conversation forward. Right. And, And you weren't doing that in those old ones you're saying. No, those all well, it was just a struggle. You know, mm-hmm. when you're when you're starting out, just having a character sitting in a chair properly yes. can be one of the most difficult things to draw. 
You're yeah. just sitting here going, how does this even work? I don't understand how <laughs> bodies conform to chairs. This <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, having characters that are in motion, you don't have to worry about a lot of that stuff as much. That was the struggle. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and you got to keep it interesting, too. Yeah. You did some work for DN Agents for Eclipse. That was the uh, Mark Vanier Mignot Eclipse comics. And mm -hmm. so do you feel like by this point, first, how did you get hooked up with that work at Eclipse? And then do you feel like you're getting better at this point at pushing a story along? The connection was I had met Jim Shooter at a convention uh -huh. several years earlier. We had been corresponding to the mail because every time I would do something, I would show it to him because my goal was I want to be working at Marvel Comics. That is what, yeah. that is what I wanted more that than That was the goal, that yeah. Was the dream. And so I kept showing Jim stuff whenever I would do stuff. And at some point, I bumped into him at a show in Chicago. Uh -huh. and I, I finally got to meet him after corresponding for a couple years. And keep showing my stuff. And he would send back notes saying, close, but no cigar, and that sort of thing. Oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm getting closer. <laughs> and so he looked through my samples. At that point, I was I was working on Megaton stuff and was working on uh, maybe AC. I'm not even sure. I think mm -hmm. some AC stuff. He was like, so you're a professional now? And I'm like, yes. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then he said, would you like to do something for Marvel Fanfare? And I was like, absolutely. What yeah. I didn't know was Marvel Fanfare is code for would you like to do an inventory job that ah, will likely sit in the drawer for years before it's ever published. Oh, okay. And they would do those kinds of jobs all the time because uh -huh. they just needed material. Back in that day, you had to get the book to the printer on time. If you didn't, the printer would fine you. There was no such thing as late books. They would slot in a story from anywhere else. They would put a reprint in mm -hmm. rather than have there be a late fee. Have to pay those late fees. And so, you know, back in the 70s, you would get those occasional reprint comics. And it was always like, what the hell? I thought George Perez was fast. When Shooter came aboard, rather than to have there be those reprints what he started doing is getting inventory stories done so that if something was running late rather than run a crappy reprint of something they're going to run a crappy fill-in story which was superior from a fan's point of view because at least it was at least it's something new yes right when i met shooter it was you want to do a story for me and it was for for fanfare and it was like absolutely and I said, let's plot it at the show. Mm -hmm. And so he was a little taken back and he was like, all right, let's do it. And mm -hmm. so we sat down at the hotel bar there and banged out a plot for an issue of Thor, it would eventually be. Right. And so after I had done that with him, then I had the ultimate samples that I could show anybody because it was like, oh, there's the Hulk. And he's fighting Thor. Right. And Power I know those fighting. guys. And yeah. you're awesome. Yes. You know, and it played to my strengths because they were just kicking the shit out of each other. Right, right. No sitting on chairs on that one. Yeah, there was no sitting in chairs for anybody <laughs> in the story. The, 
Right. It just was everything that a comic book needed to be by me. And so when I met Mark Evanier at a convention on Vancouver Island, he saw those samples and was like, oh, I've got to put this guy to work on DNA agents. This is. And so I met a couple different people there who were like, okay, you seem like you're about ready. Some of those things pan out and some of them just don't. At the same time, I think I met um, Bill Willingham and talked briefly about possibly doing some elemental stuff. And that never came about. That just dried up immediately, which was fine because I ended up doing all sorts of other stuff. But I would have liked to see your version of that. Yeah, I mean, whatever. There's there's characters there. I would have had some fun doing it. Right, right. That was fun. You worked on the DN Agents, and then there was also a giant size mini comics number four in 1986 for Eclipse, where the dragon was in a one page gag story where you're interacting with him, right? Yeah, that Uh came about through uh, Paul Curtis. Paul Curtis was a guy who had done a, a bunch of guys just do these fanzines and do this stuff on their own. And he was publishing these mini comics and he published a ton of them and a a lot of guys just kind of cut their teeth doing these weird little one-off mini comics so it's like all right that sounds like fun and so i did something for for them so it's all fun yeah it's fun and is it fun (laughs) interacting with the dragon like in print like that i don't even really remember that much doing the story in all honesty I had done a story for Paul that he never ended up printing because I think he just ended up going off and doing something else or losing interest or or whatever. And eventually I did print that story in the back of an issue of Dragon Okay. years and years and years later. So if you're looking through one of the issues of Savage Dragon at one point, come upon a, a story where Dragon looks really funky. And that's his it. backup story. I think uh-huh. the name of the title of the story was Angel Fueled Quake. Okay, there you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was just Dragon and Angel, because Dragon was the single dad raising a daughter in some of these early stories. Right. Now, in 1986, also, you did some work with Renegade Press. You penciled and worked with scripts from, I saw Robin Snyder and Jim Sinstrom. This was like in Murder Issue 1 and Murder Issue 2. And this was kind of like a Snyder and Ditko comic. How'd you kind of get hooked up with them? And, and how was working with them on that? Robin Snyder lived in the same town that I lived in and went to the comic store that I went to. Oh. So he became aware of my work because uh-huh. he was up in Bellingham, Washington. I see. And I, that's where we had settled at, at some point. Mm-hmm. So it was purely a. I know this guy and he can do this basic stuff. Yeah. And, and, and he's close to me. So, yeah. And I, I was really just a warm body. It wasn't anything more than, I don't think he was looking at me as there's this tremendous. Untapped talent. <laughs> I think it was just, I need somebody to do stuff. You're somebody. And I did some stuff from, for him that I really shouldn't even have been doing because it was like we i need somebody to letter this it's either going to be you lettering it or me lettering it and you're a better letterer than i am and it's like well i'm terrible Uh i shouldn't be lettering anything (laughs) but i ended up doing some little things that he needed 
just because he needed somebody and, right. and was there. And I think a lot of times it's like that. You're there, you're available, you can do it. They need something to be done. Yeah. And that's just kind of how it works a lot of times. All right. Well, now we're going to kind of go to the meat of the things. Jim's going to talk to you about DC and Marvel, and then I'm going to talk to you about some uh, image comics. So go ahead, Jim. Okay. So you've already met Jim Shooter and you've done that, which doesn't see publication for a long time, but your first published Marvel is a fill-in issue of Spider-Man 287 in 1987, right? Yep. And you're 25 years old and it's a Jim Owsley script with the black costume, right? Yeah. And the villain is Kingpin. Yeah, kind of. It's Daredevil in a fat suit. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It was. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it it is an awful, awful comic in every respect. (laughs) I I was going to say, it's funny because you talked about that Thor issue with the Hulk and all the action. Nothing happens in this story. I mean, you barely see Spider-Man. It's so it's so bad. He gets in, he does eventually get into a fight with Daredevil, but there's so much pieces of stuff going on all the time mm-hmm. in that it's just really I couldn't expand it. I I had no room to move. Were you disheartened after you turned it in or did you think, well, what what could I do? It wasn't my fault or what were you thinking? I don't know why I didn't follow up with the editor on that book. To this day, it, it doesn't make any sense as to why I wouldn't have said, hey, this was work, let me get more work. Around this, the time that I was, when I met Mark Evanier and was doing DNA Agents, I had also met Mike Gold, or oh. who was working at DC at the time. Ah, okay. So Mike Gold was actively trying to get me stuff at dc so he was my guy he saw something that other people weren't seeing in my work Uh and he wanted me to do the teen titans that was kind of where he was at Uh and so that was super clear because you start off with that secret origins of nighthawk which looks like it's it's an attempt to get your name associated with the Titans more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I did uh, Teen Titans Spotlight. I did two different ones, one on the Omega Man and one on Aqualad. I even did an issue of Teen Titans, issue 33. I think what it was is me just letting somebody else take the, you know, it's like this guy's looking for work for me. Meanwhile, I'm asking for stuff over at Marvel rather than having to chase jobs down, I'm just going to take the path of least resistance and stick with this guy who's trying to get me something. So he eventually bit. got me uh, Doom Patrol. In terms of the Teen Titans stuff, that first Nighthawk Secret Origins doesn't look like Nightwing. you Nightwing. very much. It, <laughs> it looks like sort of a George Perez filtered through Pat Broderick or something. Were you trying to really look like the next step in the the Teen Titans book at that point? I think it was more of a case that Anchor was so heavy-handed that he just Mm. went his own way with it. Uh, I wondered about that. I was kind of doing the same. I was just doing whatever I was capable of Mm -hmm. at that point. That's always the case. It's like, all right, what can I actually do here? Because when you get to the uh, Spotlight 10 and you're doing Aqualad, that looks like you more than anything I'd seen up to that point. I mean, that was full out Larson looking and it was fun. Did you enjoy doing that issue? 
It was all right. I think he's such a terribly designed character. And I really <laughs> yes. struggle with that because he was just had that kind of terrible afro that, <laughs> that he had. You know, it was just like, oh, man, I remember where you were the father of the Brady Bunch. And then you came back that next year and you had a, suddenly had an afro. You were looking cool, Mr. Brady. And it's like, that's, that's not a look you want for, for a superhero. And I couldn't make it work. I remember who, oh, was that Romeo Tangal like that? I don't think it was for that issue. Might have been for the actual Titans one. I don't know. Yeah, what? I know he inked me on, on something. God, I don't remember. God, I, I don't remember all those guys. It was, it's mm-hmm. been too long. That's a lot of while, though. That was yeah. a long, long time ago. And, I, and that, that's not one of those comics that I pull out every now and then to go, oh, yes. Back <laughs> this is where it is, yes. And you did some Outsiders, too. So yeah. you didn't step into the Teen Titans title. No, but you... I, I didn't. He wanted me to that... He got me a bunch of stuff. I did like an issue of Superman too. Yeah. Adventures of Superman. He was trying to find me something. And I was really grateful that he was out there looking out for me. Yeah. I I sure needed it at that point. And your very first drawing for DC Comics with that Secret Origins was a Batman. You got to draw Batman from day one. Yeah. Never drawn an actual Batman story. I was going to ask you about that, but you got that. Which turned out to be more Titans than it was in anything else. It was almost a false advertising. Yeah. Well, you know, I did, I did what I could with whatever I got. That's right. And then with the Doom Patrol in 88, you worked with Paul Kupperberg on that? Uh-huh. So how were those scripts? He would, like, give you a full script, and then, and then you would draw out the full script? That's kind of how they did it at DC, right? No, they were plots. They were plots. Oh, it was. Yeah. Okay. There, there was pretty much every thing I worked on, with the exception of The Outsiders, was plot style. Okay, I see. And you weren't the first artist on that. Steve Lytle had done the first four or so issues, and then you stepped in. Did he leave the book because he didn't want to do it? I believe he had some deadline issues. Ah. Okay. Um, Yeah. And then you you worked on it longer than anybody. You you worked on it almost to the very end. And then uh, Nolan came in at the very end. Yeah. Did you know it was going to be canceled at, at that point? No, no, it wasn't canceled. It went on long, long beyond me. Did it go long beyond you? Oh, I yeah, thought yeah. it was only a few issues. No, no, no. It, it went on for years. Well, well, are you, well, are you talking about, like, you're talking about Grant vertigo, Morrison, right? What it, yeah, the vertical. Oh, uh, yeah, no, no. But there was a time. I, yes, I, I think of that almost as a, a different thing in, in, entirely. But no, yes, it, I mean, it that... was right on the heels. I had decided I was offered some stuff at Marvel. And at that point, I was kind of not super happy doing the, the Doom Patrol, Patrol for whatever uh-huh. reason. I'm not even sure why. The writing stuff wasn't awesome. It was just kind of okay. Every issue it would be like, well, how do I make this make sense? Because it, it just wasn't quite there. The editor was really just kind of given me carte blanche to do whatever the hell I wanted on it. And in some cases, I was really taking some huge liberties with the plots because I was just like, oh, this doesn't work. I know better than this guy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, really at that time and at that age, it's kind of crazy that they were just letting me do whatever the hell. I didn't have any 
real experience doing this stuff. I've barely been in the business for a couple of minutes and already I'm just sitting there tossing out huge hunks of his plot because I just didn't think it worked very well. Yeah. I was like, there's no reason that they should have let me do that. Were you learning to be a better cover artist at this point? Because I think of that General Immortus cover. I think you didn't even do the art for that inside, but that was your last cover for Doom Patrol. And it's a great cover. I mean, and it seems like you're you're really coming to an understanding of what makes a good cover at that point. I was working on that. The cover editor at that point actually had me start laying out covers for other artists because he liked what I was doing. Yeah, you could see it. So there's a couple other books out there that I could go, yeah, I laid out that cover of that one. So that was kind of a neat period to be able to do some of that. Were you a Walt Simonson fan also? Yeah, also, yeah. Because there's almost like, it feels like a, like in those, there's almost a Simonson feel to it, but it's your stuff. Yeah, I was very much into his stuff. Did you go back and look at early Doom Patrol, the original? I didn't have part? any access to that at all. Oh, uh, okay. All right, because that's yeah. fun. I mean, that's that's yeah. I, I know. I I got it years later after the fact, and was kind of like, oh yeah, this is actually kind of cool. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> this would have been nice to have had at the time, but I didn't. So, and during this period before you went back to Marvel, you did do a um a Hulk over top of McFarland's layouts, right? Yeah, Todd had done thumbnails, so they were on separate sheets of paper. That was kind of fun. And like that Spider-Man, it doesn't really have the Hulk in it. It's, it was funny. Uh, yeah, uh, no. It was, looking at that, it's, it, it's got a great Hulk, but barely in the issue. Yeah, it was funny for anybody but me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, at the time I was like, ah, oh. you know, I, I wanted to do the book and didn't really get to do the character even in the book. And yeah, it's, That's what I noticed. It was It was kind of funny to see two in a row like that. And then you go to Marvel in 1989, and they give you the ideal book for you, right, Punisher? Yeah. And he's joking, by the I'm, way, because I think because he he mentioned yeah. he knows that you you had your heart set on doing Nova, right? Well, I mean, at that point, I just would take whatever I could get my hands on. They had offered me that, and it was like, all right, that's a book. Mm -hmm. Mike Barron would draw the script, so oh, I would okay. get these like really poorly drawn but decently enough told. See, the stories were broken down into panels. You knew how many panels were going to be there. You knew what the action was going to be. Right. All the dialogue was there. Uh -huh. And so you could just kind of follow along and do the best you can with it. And at least he had done that part of it, breaking that part down for me. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, That's cool. So that, that was kind of neat. Those were prime years for me as a teenager reading comics and stuff. I like your Punisher a lot. Oh. Well, good, good. So I know some, <laughs> some people do. Some people are like, yeah, that was awesome stuff. What, I don't yeah. know what your problem was. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Eric Larson, for this riveting interview. This ends part one. Stay tuned in two weeks for part two of the Eric Larson interview here at the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grand and Jim Thompson. Cheers. <laughs>